Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey everyone, welcome to A Good Football Show. I am Matt Straup. It is Thursday, June 16th, and today we're going to dive into some team fantasy previews. The Cardinals, Falcons, Ravens, and Bills are on our agenda. To do this, I'm joined by Pat Crane, Kyle Dvorak, and Pat Doherty, who, speaking of team previews, had one of the all-time devastating snafus this week. Pat, would you like to tell everyone what you did and how you're recovering? How are things? Let's just check in. Yeah, I wrote 80% of the Chicago Bears team preview for Thursday, knowing that it was only the third team in our team preview. I was like, wow, I thought there were more teams higher than the Chicago and the NFL alphabet. And uh, But I just didn't double-check it and continued didn't to write check. about Velas Jones. And <laughs> I was up to 2,000 words on Velas Jones Yeah, for uh, Raymond Summerlin texting me and just gave me like a cursory reminder, like, hey, get that. Remember, you have the Ravens to post today. And that's when you could, could um, you feel it like in your throat? You get that like tightness as soon as that happens. The most disgusting. And it's not like you got like the bills, right? We'll talk about the bills today. If you did that, you'd be like, well, I feel good about the work I did, right? You don't feel good after writing up the bears. You got to lose your At least you're prepared for your fantasy season. You you know, it's true. Yeah. (laughs) You know who not to draft. Exactly. Well, yeah. No, don't worry. I'll be drafting David Montgomery again for reasons unknown. Um, And you just traded for him in Dynasty, as it turns out. Congrats. You even said that, uh, I think Denny, you said, had that one and had already finished it, right? Well, if it had been literally anyone else on staff, I would have known that they hadn't started it yet. But when I saw it was Denny, I knew that was ominous. And then I asked Ray, and yeah, he had already finished. He said, for reasons unknown, he had already sent him all four of his team previews, which isn't part of the protocol, actually. And so Denny had already completed his Bears, so it's not like I could trade or anything. So a lot of wasted Chicago Bears research out there. And the world, you know, will just never know my thoughts on Byron Pringle uh, in a Bears uniform. So it's really quite a travesty. I had heard that you were going to publish your your thoughts on Velas Jones in like an ebook, though. Is that still going to proceed ahead? At first, I, I say Velas. No, it is Velas. Um, I, I was told by producer Adam just now it's Velas. He seemed pretty upset about it. Yeah, the ebook is saying. retailing for $2.99 on Amazon. And there's some days where it's discounted $2.99 if you can do the math there. Um, so we have an I'm, ebook. I'm glad- I'm glad you went that route because the original proposal was that you read us the preview as this podcast. Right. <laughs> as the entire That's podcast. Like it's June true. 16th. Uh, maybe just read us your entire Valus Jones manifesto. 
Okay, so and the first line says published at 10.15 a.m. Wednesday, yeah, yeah, yeah. line by line. The title header is Bears Team. I was going to say, I've never, I've worked here 11 years. I had never, ever done the wrong team. For I, I think what happened was that I had the Bears last year, and I think it was on June 15th, and I somehow looked at last year's schedule like two weeks ago and just got it in my head that I had the Bears. Um, yeah. But yeah. Never making that mistake again. <laughs> Didn't need an extra Bears primetime game in my life. And writing a Bears preview is like five Bears primetime games. You'd almost feel better if you'd made that mistake in like year three, though. When you make it in year 11, it's kind of alarming because it might suggest that, you know, you're actually. Well, yeah, Ray said he was, I was the only person he didn't like even think he really needed to remind. And <laughs> Dude, Ray needs to remind me. I have to check well, every two days. But he needed to check in. It was weird. Yeah, because I was doing the work. It was right. just the wrong work. <laughs> and of course, Somebody Denny, who is uh, can never stop writing, writes 20 out of 24 hours a day, had finished his 2022 Bears preview on June 13th, 2021. So he'd had it in the can for over yeah. 365 days. My God. I have the, yeah. the uh, Bengals preview due on Tuesday. And so I have work to do on Tuesday. I was going to say, I'm guessing <laughs> the number of the word count so far is uh, Saro. Uh, it's a big old zero, yeah. yeah. And, I'm, and I'll be Bangles triple checking it, but I, but I actually have a Bengals. Bengals preview, two words down. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you got the Bengals in the preview in there. You didn't have the fantasy in there yet, though. It's supposed to be Bengals fantasy mm. preview. So if you want to like looking for ways to pad the word count, that fantasy gets it up to three. So. Yeah, that's always my problem, Pat. I'm always trying to pad the word. Yeah, count. I know. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> I feel like for right. a team like the Bears, it could be like you get. 400 words of it and you're like these aren't the best players so the history of fantasy started in 1975 <laughs> i basically did recount justin fields's life story and how he uh had like a he was pretty aggressive down the field had a high average depth of target but how they don't really have anyone at all to take advantage of that and how okay, it's no. a big how Valus jones is a 38 year old rookie he's the oldest this nfl is- rookie since brandon <laughs> whedon and this is how it begins, but you're you're well on your way to actually just reading us what you wrote. <laughs> you're just you're just working your way into it right now. I think we should let him do it. It's fired up. Cathartic. Yeah, it's fired up. If he's such a I mean, I, I'm I'm potentially down. The the after show, <laughs> Pat Doherty will read his preview. Go. Um, all right, let's get into these team previews, and we're going to start in the NFC with the Arizona Cardinals. A preview that was written by Pat Corain for a team he was actually assigned to cover, and we obviously can't cover everything in these extensive previews, but we're going to just try to hit some high points. And let's start with the passing game, specifically Kyler Murray. As you wrote, Corrine, and as many fantasy managers remember, when you returned from his ankle injury in Week 13, he was not the same player we saw earlier in the season. So how much do you factor that in uh, when you rank Murray this season? Like, uh, are you kind of just putting all that aside? I think it was a second straight year we kind of saw a drop-off for him down the stretch. Yeah, and we saw a post-ankle injury, which I think matters, uh, and Hopkins also was out after week 10. He'll obviously miss the first six weeks of this season, but he does have Marquise Brown joining the team. Um, I think Kyler Murray this year is a bit of a value because he flashed a ceiling last year. He flashed like a breakout into a true elite mm-hmm. quarterback. And then he wasn't that down the stretch. And I feel like people are kind of middling that, but it's like, don't middle it. Make, make uh, a certain percentage of bets that he is that guy. Stack uh-huh. him up play for the upside because I do think that there are scenarios where, you know, Kyler Murray with Hopkins back with Marquise Brown, they played together at Oklahoma. You got to mention know that. If you heard about anybody else hear about this? 
<laughs> not uh, another week of this. <laughs> seven minutes. Got, if you had seven minutes, under seven minutes, <laughs> you, you just cash that ticket. Cash that one, baby. It was free money, too. They have uh, Trey McBride, this interesting pass-catching tight end uh, rookie, the, the t- number one tight end in the class. They have Zach Ertz, who is a, a solid check down underneath type of guy. Uh, Rondale Moore has some potential to break out mm. in the slot role. Um, and, and like, you know, AJ Green is like decent. Like if he's like your number four or five, like weapon, that's like actually pretty solid. So they definitely have, I think a fair bit of upside to recapture some of that early season magic. Pat, uh, Crane, I want to throw this to you. Cause I, I thought this was interesting last year. It was ironically after the ankle injury. And I think this just, it didn't happen to have any bearing on it. That he actually began running in the first eight, I believe games before he went down with the ankle injury. He was on pace for like 300 rushing yards. That's nothing for a player who's like as elite of an athlete as Kyler Murray. And the thing was, and this was my interpretation. I don't, for whatever reason, I don't think the ankle just made a big difference as he was just passing. So lights out. He's on pace for nearly 5,000 yards. It was like 4,800 yards. 36 touchdowns through those first eight weeks. Like you said, he, he wasn't just a good fantasy player. He was like an elite thrower of the football through eight weeks. But do you find, and there were, I think there were seven and one in those first eight games. Do you find the idea that his rushing production and his passing production are like mutually exclusive, right? If he's going to light it up through the air, hmm. they won't throw with him. And I think that makes sense strategically because he was playing so well. But do you think that's true? And more important, like that would obviously be like a pretty big limiting factor from him reaching like number one overall status. He could totally go like top two, three, four, five. But I do think like we're at an age where we almost have to have either the best passer by a wide margin or more likely to Josh Allen, where you run super well and pass just as well. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of those as mutually exclusive, but um, I do think the the upside case for Kyler probably rests more on the passing game than him, like just outrushing everybody. I mean, uh like I said, with with Marquise Brown, Rondale, Hopkins back, I think you're playing for like almost a reverse of last season where maybe he gets a little off to a slower start. And then at the end of the season, everything's clicking through the air. But I think at that point, like, yeah, maybe he doesn't end up as the quarterback one, but he's certainly someone that you're going to love having stacked in those final weeks of all your tournaments and stuff. You know, if, he, if he's clicking with all of his weapons. The only thing that is weird about the late season, like fades each of the past years was it it does play into like his biggest pre-draft concern, which was his size. And 2020 was the shoulder. Last year was the mm-hmm. ankle, which like Kyle said, like weirdly, he actually did run more after the ankle injury. He didn't score any rushing touchdowns. Maybe that's kind of fluky after the ankle injury, but he averaged 22.1 fantasy points during the fantasy playoffs, which isn't like a catastrophic number, but that was five off what he averaged before the injury. So just a huge dip in real life and fantasy production. And, it was also weird with the Cardinals that they weathered like DeAndre Hopkins' like first injury absence like weirdly well. Like they didn't really miss a beat. And then when he went out the second time, it was like like they just ran out of ideas. And that's like the other big Kyler Murray concern is Cliff Kingsbury. When like when like people get hurt, you know, like when stuff kind of goes off kilter, they like for some reason always fall back on this horizontal offense. Like so horizontal, and it's just like totally unwatchable. And as remember that you know the first Monday night playoff game, they just get like run out of the building by the Rams. And so just it's two years in a row we've had the Cliff sabotage and like the injury sabotage. And those are two pretty big concerns that Kyler has not settled. But you're absolutely right; he has number one overall quarterback upside, and he's such a he's he's proven as an elite runner. He's really an elite passer. At least down, like in terms of like big plays, at least he has like that kind of upside. 
and just need to uh, put it all together and not become a complete pumpkin for the most important fantasy games of the season, Kyler. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with you about the Cliff stuff. I mean, Dude. that's a you do wish that he was in a position where we felt like, you know, if things are kind of at the precipice of him becoming this ultra elite guy that the coaching could push him over the edge. And instead it's almost the reverse where it's like, he could be right there and you almost feel like the coaching coaching will hold him back. Why, why horizontal cliff? That's really what I want to know. It's, it's the, it's the baseball thing where like, you know, analytics come into baseball and people like, Oh, this is sick. We're pushing the game forward. And then you realize that's not fun. It turns out it was bad. And I don't think throwing (laughs) two yard screens on every play is perfectly analytical. We do think about like the air raid is like, you know, the the analytics type of stuff. And we're like, Oh no, not like that. Not analytics like that. Do it in a cool way. And and cliff just refuses, man. And it is like you said, unwatchable. Do the good analytics. Uh, when it comes to those pass catchers occasionally catching horizontal passes, as Corrine wrote, Marquise Brown should operate as the top outside receiver while DeAndre Hopkins is, excuse me, I think, I, I don't know what just happened, but I just had an event, uh, but he's suspended <laughs> while Rondell Moore will have a chance to redeem himself after his uh, disappointing rookie year. So Corrine, oh, Doherty, I mean, what's your outlook on these Arizona pass catchers? Who are you high on? Who are you less high on? Who do you care about, not care about, et cetera? And I'm going to go figure out what just happened with my sinuses. <laughs> well, my initial outlook on the Arizona pass catchers was I was in Alabama last week with Raymond Summerlin and Ed Williams editing our draft guide. And I was like, oh, the Cardinals depth chart um, still has uh, AJ Green on it. We need to delete that from the magazine. And he was like, no, no. It was like they re-signed him. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what? Um, so, yeah, if you want to know my thoughts on AJ Green and how I feel about it, that I'm so unmoved by the AJ Green resigning that I had memory hold it and totally forgotten about it. No offense to Josh actually, Morris. Um, you actually did delete him from the magazine, anyways, right? Yeah, no, we did anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's, we don't really care about being accurate. I mean, it's not like that big of a deal. Right. Look, it didn't pass the vibe check. The magazine yeah. has to be somewhat accurate, but the the peak of it is passing the vibe check. And dude, AJ Green did not pass the vibe check, so he had to get out of there. Didn't pass the vibe check at all. Trey McBride, who Crane mentioned earlier, a really interesting young draft pick and. Cliff Kingsbury, like he entered the NFL. I never could fully confirm this stat, but I, I tr- like two or three times, I believe, double checked this at the time. It seemed almost impossible to leave. So I didn't really want to believe it. But the Cliff's final season at Texas Tech, they literally didn't target a tight end. Like I still it was, it was like, I could never, I was always in my mind, but, but they straight up did not feature tight ends in the Red Raiders offense. And he's like definitely come full circle on that, you know, where they're like featuring Max Williams for a while last year. Then they really featured Zach Ertz. They aggressively invested in Trey McBride. Trey McBride is kind of interesting. It's weird because, of course, it's tight end is notoriously difficult for rookies, and he's the number two tight end on his team. But someone I'm pretty interested in in dynasty leagues, and I am interested in Marquise Brown, who you know has become a very divisive, polarizing fantasy player for obvious reasons. But it's weird, like. Kyler has never really had, I feel like, a perfect downfield weapon. Like, we kind of picture DeAndre Hopkins that way. But, like, DeAndre Hopkins, usually you got to do it in traffic, which Kyler's been willing to do. And DeAndre will win those tough one-on-one assignments with his physicality. But we we sort of seen that kind of – that started to kind of go in the second half of 2020. It was definitely kind of gone last year. And Marquise Brown, you know, he's the kind of deep threat where he doesn't need to win a hand fight. He will just run right by you. And I think it could be a really, really good fit with Kyler Murray as it was in Oklahoma. And I, I am pretty bullish on like the long-awaited, long-foretold Hollywood Brown breakout in Arizona. One thing I'll say, too, about the horizontal raid stuff is that 
I was actually surprised because the horizontal rate is like such a narrative in the fantasy community because we, I think, rightly feel that the, the offense could be better than it is uh, and could have some deeper throws. But it's, I think, more that there's just like such a plethora of shallow throws rather than a lack of deep throws. So if you're concerned about Marquise Brown joining the horizontal raid, I, I don't know. I, he'll be fine because Murray attempted 20-plus uh, yard throws at the fifth highest rate last year, uh, ranking – fifth in adjusted completion percentage on deep throws. He's a very talented deep thrower, and he actually attempted a lot of them. So uh, it's almost more like they need to figure out a way to get some more intermediate throws in there, you know? And it's kind of those screens and check downs and dump offs that are making this the horizontal rate. Yeah, I got like, I went to the college football reference page and got like 15 pass catchers deep and I didn't see a tight end. <laughs> so I'm telling you, I, I could like never really believe the, that stat, but I'm pretty sure Cliff's final season at Texas Tech, they did not target a tight end. Like that's a real stat. Yeah, and like you pointed out, like it's probably not, uh, you know, predictive. I'm guessing they didn't have. No, and it's come. I'm saying it's weird how far exactly. away he's gone from that. Yeah, um, uh, which is sort of my way of leading into saying uh, I'm a little interested in, in Zach Ertz. I know, like last year, he was just such a steal because he's old and dusty. And no one wanted to draft him for anything. Now we actually have some sort of idea that, well, yeah, he's still the catch and fall down guy, but catches a lot of passes and that's worth something, especially as long as you're not in a complete no points for receptions league. And we saw especially down the stretch, like he became an integral part of the offense whenever they were without DeAndre Hopkins, which would be the case for the start of the 2022 season. He added three targets and two and a half PPR points to his stat line last year when playing without Hopkins. So I think it's probably going to be maybe, you know, maybe Marquise Brown changes this, but I think it's more of what Karain said is that there will be some sick deep shots to Marquise Brown, and then there will be nothing for the next 10 yards working your way towards the quarterback. And then those five, those next five yards right in front of the line of scrimmage, that's where it's going to be the targets. Some deep, maybe more than average deep, and so many more than average short. And that's perfect for the Zach Ertz game. Real quick, Karain, I think the reason the horizontal raid is so triggering too is like, I feel like Kyler is much more apt to get his, like his passes batted on those throws. That's kind of where, like where a short Kyler comes into mm-hmm. play more is like it's easier to bat a ball that you know it's not going to have like much elevation on it. Mm-hmm. And that was another reason why I think it's just so so awful to watch. And when that throws to Rondell Moore, uh, it, it's yeah. like what it's it's the aesthetics are not good above the ground. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get to this Cardinals running game. Chase Edmonds gone. James Conner has a new contract at age 27. Coming off a year where he had 18 total touchdowns. Kyle, how much are you worried about the old touchdown regression when it comes to Conner's fantasy outlook this upcoming year? Yeah, if you were being prices, if I had to look this up. I knew he scored a lot. He scored 18 touchdowns. That is a lot of touchdowns. I was so like, yeah, it was probably it was probably a dozen would have been my yeah. guess, not even close. It, it was like the age guessing games, I think. Missed a couple games, too. Exactly, yeah. It was the age guessing game, right? You think you're shooting high. I'm like, oh, you know, how old is this player? I try and shoot high, and you're not high enough. It was the thing with touchdowns, and he scored 18. The thing was, he was in a position to score a lot of touchdowns per uh, PFF's expected touchdown uh, metric. He was still at mm. 11 and almost one through the air. And that was while only playing roughly a little over half the season as that sick three down James Conner player we saw in the second half mm-hmm. of the season. So if we get that for a full season, or at least on a per game basis, we get it for the entire season that he's healthy for, you know, God hope it's for the whole season because he's actually really good as a three down back. Yeah, I think he can still push like over a dozen. Like I can, I think he can exceed my guess for him this past year pretty easily. And he's not being priced as if he's going to be Jonathan Taylor scoring 20 touchdowns, right? He's being priced reasonably by the market and there's room for over exceeding the expectations, right? Just because it's, it is a really good offense and they, despite us maybe not liking it, 
play more balanced than we'd like. So it gives him a lot of opportunities as touchdowns. And he was a really good pass catcher this year, at least in terms of just going out and playing the full three down heavily targeted role. And I don't really think they have players behind him as good as Chase Edmonds. So I, uh, yeah, if, if the market was pricing it in, I'd be concerned. I think the market's pretty fair and maybe even leaving a little room for upside on him. I think the biggest concern with them is that Daryl Williams is bad at everything on the ground. So there's like no reason to have Daryl Williams active if he's not going to be out there on passing downs. Now, maybe they just have Connor as like a full workhorse, but that hasn't really been the philosophy of this team. So Connor was not particularly efficient last year as a rusher. Uh, or as a pass catcher. Yeah. He was actually a little bit better as a pass catcher, Connor. Uh, he was he averaged 10 yards per catch. He averaged like under eight or under seven, like the previous two years. So I was uh, biased against his final Steelers numbers. Never mind. There was a, a showdown slate where he had like two or three really long catches. Some of them split out wide too, where he like looked like a legit slot receiver. Uh, you know, he had some good plays. He is like the typical, like, like uh Jack of all trades, master of none, right? Like he's a good yeah. banger between the tackles. He's not mm-hmm. breaking long runs. He's probably not breaking a lot, like juking out a lot of defenders, right? But he can handle typically a pretty big workload, at least in spurts. So that, that's why I like him. I don't think he's, you know, Alan Kamara or anything. I think he would have been better off if they had added someone who's like very clearly a two down guy. And then he would have been like getting the, the receiving workload of that and then mixing in probably around the goal line, getting all the high value touches. I'd be a lot more excited about Connor. I've taken him. He's falling now. He's falling into like the late third round, sometimes like the three, four turn. I think that's totally fine, and I've and I've taken him there, but uh, I think the days of getting him at, within that group of like Fournette, Barkley, Javante, I think he's in a like kind of a little mini tier beyond beyond those guys, and the ADP now reflects that. All right, quickly as we're going to do when we reach the end of the line on each of these teams, the over under on the win total according to points bet is eight and a half. Karain. What have you taken? Let's go around the room with, with with what you've got and why you've got it. I took the over. I feel like eight and a half is uh, you basically think are the Cardinals a winning team. I think I think they will be a winning team. I think Kingsbury will cost them probably at least a game, but Kyler will make up for that and they'll, they'll have a winning record. I feel like they're just going to go 0. 0.5 over their total every year of their existence and just keep lo- like lose a first round playoff game every year. So yeah, it's the division. I feel like it's not going to be as bruising as it was last year with the Seahawks waving the white flag and the 49ers kind of in transition. So I will take the over. Yeah, I have that as well. I like the idea of, uh, of Cliff being just like millennial Jeff Fisher, right? Just good enough to get this <laughs> team to between seven and nine on a really good year, 10 wins and then bow out of the playoffs in one yeah. or two weeks. All right. Now to the next preview that, you also wrote Corain, and it is the fantasy gold mine that is the Atlanta Falcons. Now, as you put it, the Falcons' passing game, quote, could be more frisky than expected, and the Falcons do have some premium weapons in the passing game. And yes, I cherry-picked the positive info out of the preview. So let's talk about those guys, though, starting with the two most intriguing guys on this roster by far, Kyle Pitts and Drake London. I want to get everyone's thoughts on the outlook for these two, but we'll start with you, Corain. Yeah, I mean that's that's the place to start. I, I even think Kyle Pitts is is more fun and exciting to talk about even than Drake London, just because we're getting a second year with Kyle mm-hmm. Pitts. We had you know a really strong prospect profile on Kyle Pitts coming in, but obviously what they did as a rookie is also hugely hugely valuable for us projecting them going forward. And he had an exceptional rookie year. He only had one touchdown, and I think that's kind of coloring it in people's minds a little bit. 
you know, that it wasn't this amazing rookie season, but I really think it was. He had over a thousand yards. He had 2.02 yards per route run, becoming one of five rookie tight ends with 50 plus targets to have a yards per route run of 1.9 or better. The other guys are Zach Ertz, Rob Gronkowski, Mark Andrews, and Jordan Reed. I mean, this is like the breakout tight end profiles. It's looking like the type of guy who might be the tight end one in fantasy in 2023. And then for like the next 10 years after that, like that's, you know, he's got that kind of like, Oh my God, this might be really something special. And so with that tight end eligibility, him being truly a wide receiver, he doesn't pass block. He, he wasn't like that high in, in routes run out of the slot. Cause he also runs mm-hmm. routes out wide. He's a true yeah. wide receiver. Like it's actually like probably a little screwed up that we even have him as a tight end like, <laughs> for, contra- for contract. Like when he gets a second contract, like he should argue he's a wide receiver, which he is. So we'll, we'll see if that lasts, but uh, I'm super excited about Pitts. I think the real question is like, can the quarterback play support him? I think London, you know, a very strong prospect as well could have a really nice rookie year. Um, I'm a little more concerned about him just because I don't have this additional data point of him already being really, really good. The real, the one, by the way, on, on Pitts, have you seen that he's claiming that he's literally faster this off season? Christian McCaffrey did this one off season where he said, he was like, yeah, I got faster. And Kyle Pitts is now claiming he is physically faster. But which offseason did McCaffrey say that in? Because it yeah, might be yeah. good information. No, if it's it not worth like looking years up. Ago. Yeah, don't look it up. <laughs> uh, Kyle Pitts, before I hear from anyone else here, is extremely young. He's still only 21. Yes. So maybe he's getting faster. Pat, it happens. The only Sammy that. Watkins and Matthew Stafford are younger than him amongst <laughs> NFL skilled players. So <laughs> I, I really like the point Crane made that, uh, like, I, I think Greg Lennon is good, right? Man, I know Kyle Pitts is good. He, I mean, like you said, it was one of the best rookie tight end seasons ever. And the fact that he didn't score touchdowns, the one thing that we kind of all universally agree is like, sure, some players can score more or less on average, but it is the flukiest of the stats that we care about that he didn't do well. It would have been, it was, but it could have been like the best, uh, you know, tight end rookie fantasy season of all time if he had just run good as opposed to bad on touchdowns. So I don't think the touchdown opportunity is going to be great on this passing attack, but I think it could be better than last year, at least his bad luck could be better than last year. So we know he is just supremely talented. He plays uh, he plays a position that is weak, and he does not actually play that position in real life. Imagine him getting his franchise tag, and then also like Pat Fryermuth, because it'll be the same year, right? Both getting their franchise tags. I would be so tilted if I were Kyle Pitts. I just couldn't handle it looking over at the same, the same application. So yeah, I just have a supreme level of confidence that Pitts is like 100% an alpha level receiver, just playing tight end. I think Drake London is probably that, but it's just a, a much larger uh, like room for error, much less confidence. Well, two quick thoughts there with the pits and the touchdowns. I mean, it's a bad offense environment, obviously, but I do think a lot of that probably was Matt Ryan, who just r- rather infamously will not pull the trigger on those like tough yeah. throws in the red zone when his alpha weapon, you know, it was like double or triple team to just ask Julio Jones how yeah. that went. And, and Drake London, I still can't quite decide how I feel about him. We're like, or if you watched him in college, like there was some like Nikhil Harry there where there was like always someone like glued to him. But unlike Nikhil Harry, he's like a pretty subtle mover, like kind of a savvy operator where he seems much more adept at like, whereas Nikhil Harry kind of just ended up being like a big receiver. I feel like Drake London is like a much savvier player. And I think he could actually win with his style in the pro. It's, just, it's a low margin for error, but he seems like he's maybe like a savvy enough, technically good player. Uh, from a technical perspective where he can make it work in the NFL. All 
All right, let's move to this backfield now. Last year was obviously a breakout for Cordero Patterson, merged with 1,166 total yards, well, yards from scrimmage and 11 total touchdowns. But we may, if you believe what you read, be trending toward a world where Patterson is more of a receiver and fifth-round rookie Tyler Algier potentially becomes the main backfield guy. Uh, Pat Doherty, first you, and then we'll, we'll go around the room as well. How do you see this shaking out and how much do you care about those two guys I just mentioned? There seems to be more and more smoke to the CPAT stuff where who, who was so gassed, he like just stayed home from the entire offseason program. Like he's like still tired from carrying the ball <laughs> into the last season. And as we know, he was there, the coaching staff and he by the end of the year was like, yeah, it was like, he's just really tired. Like he's never done this before and it's taken quite a toll. And even though it was pretty successful for a while, for a while, the team is kind of like just outwardly like coming out and saying like, yeah, that was lightning in a bottle. That's not going to happen again. Like the, the reason it could happen uh, is because it is such an untalented backfield as we know. Like it's Damian Williams right now who, you know, get easily jumped on the depth chart by Khalil Herbert in Chicago last year. And then of course, rookie Tyler Algier, who is four, six speed, um, but definitely profiles as the best guy on early downs for the Falcons. And this, the concern with Algier though is like, so yeah, the competition's not good. The backfield's not good, uh, but that could include him. And like, you just don't, you can't ever assume this with like a day three rookie, like where it could easily be one of those situations where the back who's going to lead the team and carries or snaps, like isn't even on the roster yet. You know, like it's just a really, really, really unintriguing group of players. And so Tyler, do you have this, like the dots connect, but just know like dots connecting is like not a the, the, not an article of faith. That doesn't mean it's going to happen. That's all it is, is you're connecting dots. So the setup is good on paper for Tyler Ajir, but there's still a lot of hoops to clear for the young man who is a 4-6-40. I do think with uh, the Algier stuff, like Patterson's better off if Algier's okay. He's not yes. – you don't want Algier to be awesome, but no. I think he's better off if, if Algier's okay because one of the things we saw last year is Mike Davis's snaps – really declined as the season went on. And I think that hurt Patterson. I think Patterson's better off if they have kind of a guy who's not horrifically efficient in the backfield that they can lean on as a traditional running back. And then it frees up Patterson to be used more as a receiver, which is how he's going to win his leagues. If he's a, a receiver with running back eligibility. I mean, this whole team is, is a, uh, is a scam. They're all just receivers who have wrong eligibility. So this is the only way we can get fantasy points out of this team. We better, on that note, get uh, the Marcus Mariota batted pass back to himself oh. to complete the scam, uh, the scam trinity, right? Because yeah. he did he did that uh, playoff game versus Kansas City. By so, the way, they're they're really they're pumped about his leadership. By the way, the Falcons said on Thursday they're really pumped about Mariota's leadership. Uh, no, I was gonna say supposedly he's had a good what was a mini camp like three days, right? But he had a good mini camp and Ritter, uh, not as much of one. So on this team, maybe worth mentioning that it, it looks like we're gonna. I mean, what are we betting on for like the amount of games started for Marcus Mariota? Like, I, I think I actually, for our to help out with our projections, like guesstimated like fourteen or fifteen. Like, I, I, I don't know. These like, unless you're like a high first round pick, it is really difficult to get on the field for much time as a rookie. I'll get on the field just because after seven or eight games, Marcus Mariota will like pull his calf or something, and so even if they don't want to necessarily make the change. Ritter will make rookie starts like almost an ironclad. Yeah, I, I think so too, but I'm kind of with you, Kyle, that it won't be a ton. I, the, the Falcons offensive line ranked 31st in pass blocking grade last year. And looking into Ritter's profile I was reminded just how bad he was under pressure 
took sacks at a Christian Hackenberg level rate. Oh no. Uh, he uh, ranking ranks second percentile in adjusting completion percentage under pressure. So I don't think he's the type of guy you really want if they can't pass block. Now maybe they they pass block better. It's the same unit. And maybe they gel a little bit more. So, but I think Mariota like he might come back. Like Ritter, it might be like Ritter time, and then they're like, oh no. This was a bad idea. Yeah, uh, and bring back Mariota. So, what was that? That was like with uh, Zach Wilson. Like they were like, "Wow, he's probably healthy this week. We're going to give him three more weeks to recover mm-hmm. from this injury, just because, not because Mike White was playing better, just just because in general, right? You know, just, right? Yeah, I, I could very much see that. That's uh, a scenario that could play out. Crane, what do you think about taking uh, Algier and Cordero Patterson on the same team? Because I think what you said about the way we want Cordero Patterson to use was very important. That like we saw, he ended up at, by the end of the season. I believe Next Gen Stats had him charted as the most stacked box rate uh, a running back face. Right, he was just the between the tackles banger and there's there's not mm-hmm. much else to say about it it was terrible for him that's not what we want from him we want him to be the running back side of debo samuel and to do that you can't have mike davis running at like 2.9 yards per carry you need someone competent in the backfield and i think for that reason there might be like a little bit of positive correlation that one role helps feed the other one and they're super cheap right it's not like you're you know you don't need to capture the whole backfield to get your money's back on Curtis or patterson yeah i guess it's still like a little expensive to take them if it's a normal situation, but, and so I hadn't really thought to do that, but it's definitely not a normal situation to your point. And uh, we had a ton of opportunity for Mike Davis in this backfield, I uh, believe 197 uh, opportunities that he saw last year, uh, 196 that's uh, carries plus targets. That's, that's a fair amount. And that's like with them being, you know, scaling him back and, and basically pulling him from, you know, that, that kind of like, basically a starter role that he had uh, to kind of more of a committee guy. So Algier, who has some big play potential, he only runs a four, six, but he's a bigger breakaway kind of Jordan Howardy type, young, young Jordan Howard type of back. Um, where it's Anytime like you can draft the next Jordan Howard. Got to do it. These are some cuts. Uh, the Jordan Howard was good back in the day, but the Jordan <laughs> Howard seriously. comp, the Hackenberg, these are some cuts from Kareem. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, really. I, I had to leave for a little mic crackling issue and i wish i just stayed out this has just been awful to hear you guys <laughs> body slam my team like this but i get well, it now, I, get I know it. i'm saying some good things you know uh out okay. here i think who is a running back with running back eligibility so it's going to be tough because he's like actually gonna have to score like his position um but you know the, he can get there i think with some big plays and then you're also banking on big plays from patterson so taking both and then hoping that basically you have a slot receiver in patterson um and algiers a running back I, yeah then they're not cannibalizing each other they're actually helping each other um, and man, there's really nothing here behind Drake London and the wide receivers in the wide receiver room. I mean, like I listed Geronimo Allison on this depth chart because we have to go six wide receivers deep. Geronimo Allison was written on a fantasy preview in 2022, guys. I mean, it's like rough. It's rough. That's shape. still better than the Bears and Ravens receiver situations, by the way. Uh, Demir Bird was also listed. I wrote the name Auden. Yeah, that, he also better than the Bears and Ravens. Receivers, <laughs> those all those names all made the magazine, though, if I'm not mistaken. And Auden Tate could be a position switcher because there's always rumors that he'll play tight ends. He's so big and slow. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, I I regret that we have to do this, but the points bet win total over <laughs> under is four and a half for the Falcons. I'm going to shield my eyes, cover my ears for this section. We'll start with you, Crane. I already know what you did, so let's go ahead with you. Yeah, I was. Uh, dismayed to see how bad Mariota was um, before getting benched for Ryan Tannehill back in 2019. I had forgotten just how bad he was uh, less accurate than Kyle Allen and Mason Rudolph that season. 
uh, I, I've taken the under here, guys. They they were not a good team last year. They they uh, they won a lot more games than their win total or than their point differential would have suggested. Um, so I'm taking the under. Kyle, you go because I'm going to try to look up a stat. <laughs> Uh, no, the Titans, they didn't catch any passes. I already checked that one out. No, uh, <laughs> I'll take over because it's such an incredibly low number. And when you get to yeah. face, I assume, Sam Darnold, Sam Darnold one time, maybe two times, or maybe zero, but that is also not good. And then I don't think the Saints are a particularly strong team either. Bucks, Bucks should route them two times. But it's it's a relatively weak uh, you know, NFC South, and it's such a low total. Four and a half games is not a lot of games. I think uh, just like in the... Bell curve distribution, even if you're a bad team, you should probably win like five. I don't know. So I'll take They're getting number. six. They're getting six. Mark it down. Six and 11. All right. So real quick, speaking to Crane, talking about the like the Falcons were not as good as their record indicated last year. I believe they were seven and 10. They went 0 and 7 with a negative 159 point differential against playoff teams. Oh um, so 159 is a lot of points. Yeah. And seven games. And I think the Falcons are taking the under on four and a half because this is just a ghastly roster, uh, including at quarterback. Desmond Ritter is not good either. He's like fundamentally sound from like the way he's like sets his feet. And that's like kind of it. And the whole thing, the entire case of the over will rest on Marcus Mariota being the player he appeared to be like during his Raiders bit duty where he was like much more aggressive as a runner and as a like a passer. The rare times he got to attempt throws, like seemed to be playing with an entirely different mentality. You know, he's kind of like famously passive during his time in Tennessee, especially as a runner. But yeah, it's just not a good roster at all. The Raiders, as they say, he got that dog in him. He found a he dog. He did have the dog in him on the Raiders. You got to get him ready for that. He did play oh. fun. It was like uh, another. Uh, it was different. A showdown slate. I remember he came in at uh, like halftime ish and ended up like winning people a ton of money. And I wasn't tilting and I wouldn't do that. I mean, he can, Arthur Smith can run some version of his Tannehill offense, at least through Mariota. You can't, you can't roll out Matt Ryan. You cannot read option with Matt Ryan. <laughs> That's true. He tried to. He ran a lot of play action. Uh, <laughs> one, one last nail in the coffin here. They have the 23rd hardest schedule or the 23rd easiest schedule. So a fairly difficult schedule according to Warren Sharp. So they, they're going to have a tough go of it. That's All right, fine. Problem. Five games. I'm down to five. I, I'm six to five. We're just so haggling still- over, over Matt's games. <laughs> All right. We have two more previews to hit first. We're going to take a quick break. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
And this is just a reminder, if you don't have the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet, go download it now. The contests are free and easy to play, and you have a shot to win thousands by predicting what will happen in the NBA playoffs on the PGA Tour and NASCAR circuit. We also have a special contest Tuesdays and Thursdays. It's called Battle of the Bets, where you can agree or disagree with our experts for a shot to collect some cash. All right. It is now a preview written by our very own Pat Doherty. It's not the Bears preview. It's the Ravens preview. Pat, we've made it. Congratulations. How are you feeling now? We're about halfway into this. Do you feel like you've healed from your Bears mistake? Well, I do, but it's still, it still ended up being a mistake for the entire website because we had to go out of alphabetical order. We posted the Bills on Wednesday and then posted the Ravens on Thursday because thankfully yeah. Zach Kruger already had his Bills preview in the can. But I'm not sure. I like symmetry. I like order. And I, I, I will be haunted by the teams being out of order for the rest of the summer. All right. We've heard heavy rumblings of a impending change of philosophy for this team, Pat, specifically a change back to their old philosophy, which obviously is very directly tied to the outlook for Lamar Jackson and this passing game. So uh, hit us, first of all, just with your thoughts on the setup for Lamar this upcoming season. Yeah, I mean, they've made no secret of what they're going to do, where they're going back to the future, basically, of what worked in 2019 and 2020, because the shift last year, as everyone knows by now, was not by choice, um, going from run heavy to, you know, like one of the league's pass heaviest teams uh, tends to happen when you lose your top two running backs for a single down of real football is played. And you know, the Ravens run rate was 54% in 2019. It was 55 percent in 2020 that went all the way down to 44 percent last year Lamar Jackson only averaged 26 passing attempts per game in 2019 and 2020 that spiked all the way to 32 last year and as we know it just didn't work that's not the way this team is built uh, it's especially not the way this team is built now that Marquise Brown has been traded Rashad Bateman at least he was a first round pick but is the only viable receiver what's I mean Devin Duvernay is like a wind sprinter basically, who has like 50 catches in two years, like seemingly no certifiable NFL skills other than being very fast, which is an important one to have, of course. And Tylen Wallace was kind of like a dynasty sleeper last year. He was very, very productive at Oklahoma State. It was kind of like a contested catch artist, but didn't produce as a rookie. He's already pretty old for a sophomore. He was a former day three pick, so it's not like he has like draft capital really working in his favor and as we know, I mean, as they should be doing, I mean, they literally, the Ravens literally drafted a center in the first round. I mean, they are going all back in on the run as they should be doing. And like the car got thrown in reverse last year, not by choice. And they are definitely pulling another 180 for 2022 with the approach. Yeah, they had, uh, you know, I'd say they had probably one of the weaker receiving rooms in the NFL. I think Rashad Bateman breaks out. Like, I think he's talented enough to do so, They'll have a below average one because they just don't have anyone behind him. Assume you're not counting Mark Andrews as a receiver. Like he does play that type of role. But, uh, and so what did they do in the draft? They took offensive linemen, tight ends, and a running back, like their sixth round pick, right? They, they made it very clear that one, this was a positive takeaway from this. They have a lot of faith in Rashad Bateman, right? Uh, that, that's a pretty, uh, a pretty bold thing to do is to have a, what I think we can all kind of agree is at least a shallow. I think that he could be a good top receiver, but not much to work with behind him and say, you know what? We got one final pick. We've only taken tight ends and, and linemen on offense. Spend it on a running back when we're getting two running backs back. So I think that's a vote of confidence in Bateman, which I like. I also think it's a very, very clear indication that they assume that once they're healthy, they had maybe the most injured defense in the league last year, lost like multiple all pro corners. I think five or six guys in their secondary alone ended the year 
on IR. It was very obvious that they just weren't in a position to play the typical Raven style. They think they're getting back to that, and they, they should. Injury luck was terrible for them. So I like what the, you know, the draft said for Bateman a little bit, but also it, it makes it very clear that they're going back to the style they played in, in 2019 and 2020. Real quick, before Crane jumps in, speaking of the point Kyle made about injuries, the Buffalo News, the end of the year, tried to chart the amount of games lost to injury in 2021, and the Ravens had the second most in the league after somehow the Lions had more. I would have guessed the Ravens had by far the most, but as Kyle alluded to, just like a biblically injured team last year. Yeah, the thing is the Ravens actually lost good players. The Lions didn't have good players yeah, to yeah. start with. <laughs> what are you going to do? I think with Bateman, you know, they could end up being one, like the team that signs Julio Jones or something uh, just because the guys behind Bateman are – I think you described it as an eyesore, Pat, in the article. <laughs> uh, well, I described Devin Duvernay's career yards per catch of 8.9 as an eyesore, which that'd be pretty good for a running back. For a wide receiver, it's like you're going to be uh, on the street soon. It is like pretty wild because like looking at you're like, oh, Devin Duvernay's been so bad, he can't play. And then you go and look at like Prochet and you're like, well, maybe he'll play. Um, <laughs> and Tylen Wallace was, was terrible. So. I think that like it would just make sense for them to sign Julio, which makes you feel like probably a little bit worse about Bateman. You know, his projection will come down. But I don't know that, that something like that would really affect Mark Andrews a ton because I do think he's the number one here. Pat, it jumped out to me. You said you thought he should be the consensus number one tight end, not in his own tier, but the consensus number one. He is not. He is the consensus number two with Travis Kelsey going ahead. And it, it kind of reminds me of like, Jonathan Taylor last year or DeAndre Swift last year, like coming after the year, we were like, these guys are exciting. These guys really flashed as rookies, you know, um, and early drafters were, were higher on them than later drafters ended up being feels a little that like that to me, maybe with the tight ends where like, it's so hard once you're looking at projections, not to have Travis Kelsey bump up. Cause there's a chance that he just gets a ton of target volume. But in terms of like the direction that these guys careers are going, maybe we should be more excited about Andrews. Yeah, I mean, it's been methodical, Kelsey, like you said, where thankfully it's only been a little bit of regression each year, but it's been like steady. And it's hard not to feel like maybe not like a, a total production cliff is coming, but just the cliff from the Travis Kelsey we know. It seems like we're almost there. Whereas Mark Andrews had been like hinting at a season like last year for so long. I mean, third most yards in the history of the tight end position last year. And he's just so important to this offense. We know like, that the passing volume is going to decline. That's a kind of a big deal, but there's just so little. Even if they added Julio Jones, there's still be so little viable target competition that I do feel more comfortable. Even if it feels point chasey to some of the show, I do feel more comfortable with Mark Andrews over Travis Kelsey. Are we? I, I feel like we might be downplaying the level that the Ravens want to retreat to running the football because it's not like Andrews was like a fringe player two years ago and then last year became his team's very obvious number one receiver, you know, for target share purposes. His target share was up 1% compared to 2020. His air yards share was up 2%. It's better. It's impressive that he did that while the team also passed more, but it wasn't like he was dynamically such a different player than he had been in previous years. His yards per route run was also basically in line with his career average, as was his yards per target. He was better, but it wasn't to the degree that I thought he was a different player. A lot of his production, when you just look at the market share and his efficiency, was essentially just from the uptick in passing volume. Now, to be able to like sustain higher efficiency at higher volume is impressive and alludes to his talent. I believe he is one of the two to three best talent, most talented tight ends. But, I mean, he will get hit like a truck if they return to that uh, the offense they played in 2019 you know, or 20. 
And I believe two, his snap share was up last year. Um, his snaps and, and routes were up, but it didn't have a large effect on his share of the targets and yards. His definitely his snaps and routes were up for sure, though. To that point, just a few numbers. I mean, just in terms of like receptions and yards, his his four years in the league: thirty four receptions, sixty four receptions, fifty eight receptions, one hundred and seven receptions. Then he goes <laughs> five hundred fifty two yards, eight hundred fifty two yards, seven hundred one yards, one thousand three hundred sixty one yards. So it's like he absolutely exploded. But I mean. What I, I don't know. I, I just don't know what the trajectory is for me. He did you know? stay pretty efficient. He was third in yards per out run at tight end. And the other two guys didn't have a thousand yards receiving. So it, Kyle is right. It even if it just it's to how much they throw the car in reverse, basically. Because again, the run rate went from fifty-five percent to forty-four percent last year. So uh the, the you know, only eleven percent might not seem like a lot, but if they so went much. all the way back to forty-four percent, that would be you'd probably have to rank Travis Kelsey higher for sure. If you knew for sure that was going to happen. Yeah. I have in my rankings, Kelsey one, Andrews two, and I was more debating Andrews two or three. I still kept him two. Uh, I, I still think I, I ranked him over pits and that's how I take them. But like on underdog right now, they're going 15, just about 15 picks apart. Like I would take the the discount pits. Cause that was, I had them closely ranked together. I still took, uh, you know, Andrews ahead of him, but it, wasn't a 15, you know, it wasn't over a round disparity that early in the draft to me, uh, because I think we're going to see the the targets shrink a lot. Like you said, like 11% is a massive number of, of targets. Corrine, did you have another uh, spare thought on Andrews before we move to this uh, Ravens backfield? My point was just about uh, Nick Boyle and his role and like how even in 2020, Nick Boyle was, was someone involved in the offense, which kept Andrews from kind of being this every down tight end and he had before that he had uh you know kind of two of three things he was highly efficient as a receiver he's used basically only as a receiver but he wasn't out there all the time and and that's what you saw uh in 2021 his snap share was up to 76 percent uh in in 2020 it was only 65 percent so that's like the one like Denny, I think on a podcast recently, he was talking about how, you know, he was running routes at the same rate per snap as he always has. That's true. Everything's been kind of the same with Mark Andrews. And most of it last year was that the offense changed what they were doing. But he still had a pretty significant 11% jump in in snap rate. And I think that's that's one reason to stay bullish and uh, and continue to mix him in at ADP. I don't I don't think he's overpriced. Travis Kelsey is just an old man. Am I right, folks? All right, let's let's go to this Ravens ground game. Uh, given the likely ground heavy approach that we've hinted at, how high are you, Corain, on one J.K. Dobbins? What what are, I think we've talked about him a little bit on a recent episode, but maybe not in depth. So I want to get everyone's thoughts on him as well, coming off that knee injury. He's a type of player that I don't usually aggressively target. Uh, we don't know if he's going to play third downs as, as Pat mentioned in the article and he probably won't given that the that brought in Mike Davis and Tyler Beatty who like one of will be active on game days I assume and both are kind of receiving down specialists so that's not great plus it's got Gus Edwards yeah. so it's a split so the, everything kind of says like eh but he's really talented if he's healthy and this offense potentially would be extremely efficient on the ground as they were back in the MVP Lamar days. But, uh, you know, I would still want to be very careful about drafting him if he was going more like he was last year. He's not. He's going more like fifth, sixth. So, like, 
I'm drafting him. I'm I'm shocked, but here I am. I'm I'm drafting him in in the dead zone, and uh, you know, late dead zone. I think you know he makes sense in these best ball drafts. It's so weird the J.K. Dobbins, where we know he's the most talented back in this backfield. We know about how great his real life draft capital was. I mean, he's still only 23 years old. It's just I just feel like you can't ever assume, no matter how much it makes sense on paper that a third-year pro with only 153 career touches, for whatever reason that is, you just have to be a little cautious with that. Like, almost to a letter, like we're still always too optimistic about injury comebacks. And this is a fairly standard injury these days, a torn ACL. That's like the only pause I have with J.K. Dobbins. But as Crane said, I mean, he's basically going as like a low-end RB2. I think he was the RB22 the last time I checked on underdog. And like that's like pretty sensible, like, there's plenty of risk baked into that and you're still getting lots of uh, untapped upside at that ADP. And this is weird too. Cause like, like Crane said, you can't assume third downs uh, with JK Dobbins and you kind of, you don't even quite know what it's going to be on early downs. We do know like he'll lead the team in touches, but you just don't quite know how much Gus Edwards will get. I, I've seen the fantasy community try to like manifest a movement like Gus Edwards is going to get cut. I just don't really think hmm. that's realistic at all. After what happened, uh, there, there's been a few guys tweeting. Kyle, people are saying, "Have you heard about this? Anybody seen this?" Um, and I just after the like production fiasco, like how low on bodies they were, like I can't see that possibly happening. So there's just a lot of like interesting questions of J.K. Dobbins, but there's definitely more unknown upside than like unknown downside with Dobbins. Yeah, he kind of reminds me of uh, Jonathan Taylor, who going into his second year, I was like, of course he's really good, but Neam Hines is going to take away work. You know, he can't possibly be that efficient again. And then he's super talented. He just blows your face out the back of your head because he's that good, and you didn't have any of him. And that was uh, a big flaw in my game, and that's why it, you know didn't have, uh, you know, didn't didn't ship the million maker or whatever on, on any of the best ball sites. And I think J.K. Dobbins is probably in that same stratosphere of talent. Like you look at his production, Ohio state, he was just elite and he culminates it with, you know, a 300 carry over 2000 yard season. He was also a good pass catcher. He just doesn't probably profile to do a ton of that in Baltimore, given that they do have pass catching backs behind him. And you typically don't see these running quarterbacks throw to them as much, but like, if there are running backs who I think can surpass their committee status through efficiency, he's kind of the top of the list of the ones that I think are priced at least fairly. I mean, it'll be insane. What if he is the third down back? I mean, that would be uh, amazing. He should be. He's a, a very solid pass catcher, and it Someone does. Someone hasn't the, watched every touch to Tyler Beatty's college career, and it's Tyler shows. Beatty's good. I, I mean, it's you know they didn't spend a lot on him. I, I was disappointed when he landed to Baltimore because he probably should. I know. I kind of was there. Mm-hmm. I I don't have the numbers, but Dobbins down the stretch the previous year was an absolute machine near the goal mm-hmm. line, wasn't he? I mean, he was he was very good near the goal line and seemed like the goal line guy at that time. But there's also plenty of times where he wasn't near the goal line and he still found his way into the end zone, which is, uh, you know, didn't he average like over six yards per carry, which of course is environment uh, related, but the environment should be very, very good. Yeah. Uh, All right. The points bet win total over under is nine and a half. Uh, Pat Darty, what have you selected? Yeah, I've I've hit the over. I mean, that's a number they would have hit uh, all four years of Lamar Jackson under center if it hadn't been for his injury last year they went what eight and nine they probably would have gotten to 10 if he hadn't missed five games with injury it's still a deep roster it's one that can't possibly be as injured as it was last year it's a good coaching staff. coaches have had a little turnover at least with the defensive coordinator um 
but it's very difficult to see like the Ravens kind of like, as I said in the article, like regressing to what has really been like their 10 to 11 win mean uh, with John Harbaugh and Lamar Jackson. So the overfield is very sensible to me with the Ravens. I think that's where I'm at. It's close, but like, you know, we look at what happened them last year and it was like, like you said, biblical. It was very unfortunate and especially a corner. Like they were an elite pass defense for like three to four consecutive years before uh, last year's just complete injury related debacle done a really good job addressing that through the draft. So I think getting everyone back just like normal injury luck, you don't have to be good with injuries because they're just so bad. Just the regression in the mean there is enough to keep them in play. My only concern is the division probably got a a good bit harder Uh, gaining Deshaun Watson for some amount of time. We would assume right now, no, no update on that yet, but then losing Ben Rosberger, and I know Kenny Pickett isn't great, but I think he'll be better than Ben. So that's kind of my only concern, but they also got a lot better themselves, even if it wasn't via quarterback. All right, last of four teams we're going to hit as we close out this early portion of the alphabet is the Buffalo Bills. Preview was written by Zach Kruger on NBC Sports Edge. And let's start by looking at these Bills primary pass catchers, Kyle, uh, in particular, Stephon Diggs and Gabe Davis. So how high are you on Davis coming off that absurd playoff breakout? And do you see Diggs rebounding some after a really good year, but not quite up to his 2020 standards season last year? Yeah, I, I think I have, uh, you know, Diggs rebounding, but like I, I, we're seeing the ADP on Gabe Davis rise a lot. And I think it's rising toward efficiency and not beyond efficiency, at least at this point in terms of where the market is pricing him, because like he was a very good college prospect. He was a second year breakout at a D1 school, an early declare. And then he's been nothing but productive, even on limited opportunity, but just like one of 24 receivers to ever get a thousand yards and 10 TDs for the age of 23. He's been really good and we just haven't seen the role yet. There's really not, you know, we could have said this last year too. There's really not a reason that he doesn't play nearly every snap for a team that is just, I mean, the best of the best when it comes to, this is the fun analytic football, right? Analytics football. They throw it deep. They throw it often. They were third in pass rate over expectation last year. They're also positive pass rate over expectation in the red zone, despite having one of the best red zone running quarterbacks. So we really are getting the best of all of it with this team. So I think relative to ADP, not versus each other, I feel like it's like fishy to just buy into the hype of Gabe Davis because it's coming off of one great game, but it's not one great game. It's really two seasons building towards something, in my opinion. So I, I like both of them. Like you should be drafting a lot of bills if you can versus ADP. I found myself getting a little more Gabe Davis. With Gabe Davis, like you said, it wasn't, it's like, it's the perception, not perception. No one's really pushing the narrative, but like, it's just not a one game wonder where he forced his way onto the field as a fourth round rookie. That always really makes you take notice. It was weirdly, you know, not involved a lot in the first half of last season because they just were intent on featuring Emmanuel Sanders and they finally dialed back Emmanuel Sanders. Then he just starts having huge games again, Gabriel Davis. And just when it comes to like, evaluating an eight catch 201 yard four touchdown division around performance. I do feel like if you're going to, you can go one of two ways with it. I feel like you're probably better off over interpreting it than under interpreting it. Like a guy just going totally nuts. Again, this concept had been building towards something like that. It wasn't like it was just like out of the blue um, where I gave Davis is someone where there will be reasons for like hesitance, but I feel like he's someone that kind of worth like getting out over your skis on. Sean Siegel's done some good work about, you know, like fourth, fifth year breakouts where those tend to come from guys who weren't early uh, draft picks and Gabe Davis only entering year three. But I think the point being that, like, if you are not selected with one of these premium picks, it takes you this extra time to just even prove that you should be involved. 
And that's what he spent his rookie year doing. Like, hey, you should play me. And then in his second year, he's still proving that point. Like, you should play me instead of Emmanuel Sanders. And for much of the season, the team inexplicably disagreed with that. He finally gets out on the field. He was highly efficient throughout his entire or throughout his entire sophomore season. Not so efficient as a rookie, not terrible. Very efficient as a sophomore. I think, you know, you throw that game in with everything else, you average it all together, and you look at a second season that looks like the type of season that might be the, the year before a true third-year breakout. So I like Gabriel Davis a lot. Uh, I don't think, you know, he's, he's the type of guy where I've reached four by like six picks and I feel fine about mm-hmm. it. I do also take digs. Ahead of ADP because it gets in that running that there's like a certain range of running backs kind of at the back end of the first where I'm like eh, I'd rather I'll I'll get whoever's left on the back and I'm taking digs, you know so I I like both these top weapons uh, I mean we know this offense is going to be explosive you got to get pieces I mean with digs like it, there was a feeling like for much of the season we we kept talking about how his slow start his slow start you look up at the end of the year he's got more than 100 catches more than 1200 yards and 10 touchdowns and that was you know. A disappointment based on his previous year. The uh, quarterback of this team is a guy named uh, Josh Allen. He was used a ton. That's a as Jags a defensive lineman, actually. You misspoke. Used a ton as a rusher last year. 122 carries, 763 yards, six touchdowns on the ground. Crane, do you worry at all, uh, like I do, for maybe no good reason about the Bills potentially dialing that back at all? Like, do you think that was potentially the peak, and we? We, we could have seen the peak of Josh Allen rushing already, or is that overthinking it? No, I don't think it's overthinking it. I, I mean, we do have this coaching change with, with Brian Dayball gone now. And I, and from what I was reading, it seems like, you know, Allen wants to be maybe running more than this, the coaches want him to. And also mm-hmm. one of, I think it was um, Joe Biscaglia of the athletic was saying that, you know, there were times where McDermott was not happy with how much, they were running with how much they were not running the ball. And so you could see maybe McDermott having a bit more of his fingerprints on this offense in general beyond Josh Allen rushing, maybe Josh Allen passing a little bit less. I think there's my guess would be we see some games this year where we're panicking a little bit, probably probably panicking when we shouldn't be. But I bet we get some like Twitter meltdowns of what happened to the Bills, you know, because there's going to be games right where, Ken Dorsey's like still kind of growing into his role and McDermott is, you know, saying, Hey, I, I don't want, I don't want this day ball stuff where you pass through it no matter what I sometimes want to want to establish. So maybe we see a little bit less of, of Josh Allen overall. And we see a little bit more running through the running backs. Um, maybe we get some of that with James Cook as receiving, but mm-hmm. you know, potentially also just some more hands-offs. I will say with Allen and the rushing is that it, it was a little telling that after their lowest moment, you know, the humiliation to the Patriots at home, that they kind of committed to more to Allen as a rusher after that. And he had some of his biggest rushing efforts after that. And like some of like indispensable efforts on the ground after that, where at least like, like some cranes and maybe they'll dial it back when they can, like you don't need to have him running against the jets. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, like that was, pretty well proven at this point, like maybe the most indefensible part of their entire offense, which is close, close to indefensible in a lot of different areas. So maybe the floor sometimes goes a little lower than we'd like, but the, the rushing ceiling, I think won't be as high as ever. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, lowest moment to losing to urban Meyer, probably the worst coach. Yeah. That's a good point. In the history of the NFL, <laughs> but, uh, you know, losing to <laughs> losing to divisional rivals. 
not not great either, uh, especially when it has high playoff impact uh, implications. I, I kind of agree, though, that uh, at one point I've already got the tweet fired up. You know, look at how they massacred my boy when we see, you know, the running backs <laughs> combine for 30 yes, carries. That's they, the they kind tweet of, I'm talking about. Yeah, they've they've won, you know, kind of a relatively easy game. And you hear you hear one of you know Mike Kafka or something comes out after the game. He's like, Yeah, we just really thought it was a good game to to put it to him on the ground. Mm-hmm. And I do like it was the best season of Josh Allen as a runner, kind of uh, by a clear margin, right? We had uh mm-hmm. just incredible, like you know, the incredible uh 300 100 performance, I believe we got from him. And I, that's probably not the plan for a guy who's you know the face of your franchise, hopefully for a decade or more, when he can also throw it so well and you have the receiving talent to do it. So, yeah, I, I do think we are not going to see 700 yards on the ground again, but I still think he'll be one of the, maybe the best dual threat quarterback in the league in terms of fantasy production. Maybe real life, too. That's also very reasonable. Kyle's got, like, three different variations of that tweet, uh, like, in, in his drafts folder. Mm-hmm. I haven't scheduled it already. I just have it up on TweetDeck, and I'm like, I hope this is the right week because it's coming out. <laughs> it's All one right. thing to predict that we might feel that way, but for Kyle to predict the exact tweet needed is just magic. Well, the the backfield, the possibility of more of this backfield has already come up. So let's talk about it. Uh, Devin Singletary had uh, 36% of his yards from scrimmage and six of his eight touchdowns during the last four weeks of the season. So, Pat Darty, how do you weigh that late season surge as well as the arrival of second round running back James Cook when you consider uh, who to draft from this backfield and, and when to draft them? You mean that was another post Patriots adjustment that they made, like an amazing adjustment. Like we have to finally dispense with this three man committee where like no one can get in rhythm, like no one knows their role, like no one can get that hot hand, folks, which is very real. Am I right? The hot hand is real, definitely a thing that exists. Um, but the running game is much more effective if they just committed to Devin Singletary, and he was the right guy to commit to because he's just better than Zach Moss, who is not good. Matt Breida, not good. Uh, whatsoever and I think he'll be relatively like uncontested on early downs this at least to begin the year Devin Singletary where the third down thing I would say more concerning than James Cook's uh, draft drafting selection was the fact that you know that they thought they had JD McKissick signed like a real deal like third NFL third down back like a guy who there would have been zero question that he would be the third down back where James Cook there's at least like, can the rookie actually earn this role? Cause you know, a super bowl or bust team is not going to just like give this role to him. Like he's going to have to come out and earn it as you know, it's very dicey. A lot of times for these young quarterbacks trying to pass protect for someone like Josh Allen. So I think that Devin Singletary could, could actually have close to a three down role. I mean, Duke Johnson is also there. Duke Johnson is also a threat of course on third downs, but I do think Devin Singletary is like another year. He's probably destined to be a little underdrafted because I think now there's not going to be any Zach Moss like randomly stealing like two or three touchdowns in one year. I think he'll just be much more comfortable like the early down. But I guess Josh Allen could still steal those, but pretty good setup for Devin Singletary in early downs. I don't think it's like necessarily like written in stone that he's not going to be the third down back. And mm-hmm. and like too, it's his final year of his contract, and they're not going to care about like like, you know, keeping him fresh or whatever, like, yeah, whatever. He's going to be gone next year. Um, so I think a pretty good overall setup for Devin Singletary this year. I'd push back a little bit on Singletary as a pass catcher. He's not good at that. And he, you know, he's, he's been better than the people who are on the roster. And like James Cook, I feel like it's a little oversold. Like he, the fact that he wasn't 
such a huge early down back. You know, he never he never had like a thousand yard season or anything. Like that. He only caught sixty seven balls in four years, which is more than a lot of backs catch. But he never even had like a thirty catch season. So I'm just like I just don't know. Like a, I just a, a team that's Super Bowl or bust. I just don't know if they'll give that role to a third down rookie. We can play a little game to close this out. Uh, there were 67 qualified running backs uh, in terms of targets. And where do you think Singletary ranked in yeah, yards per Yeah, he wasn't that run? efficient, folks. No, take yeah. a guess. Take a guess. Can I guess the yards per route run that he had? Hell yes, you can. I'm going to guess 0. 0.92. Oh, it's got to be over one. It was lower than that? It's not even close. It was 0.6, and he was 66 Whoa. in the PFF receiving grade and yards per out run out of 67 Whoa. players. Uh, he's just and really number 67 not, was? I think it was Sony Michelle for at least yards per out run. Yikes. It was, yeah. Down so, down. Woof, 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 woof. Yeah, right. he's just wow. not particularly good at that. And that's okay because he's a good runner. I think he's good between the tackles. And I think, we, Pat, you pointed out that they signaled that that's the back they want. They want the pass catching back. They tried to get McKissick. They brought in Duke Johnson. And then they go out and get Cook. Like, that's the obvious role they want for him. And I'm kind of excited to take that guy paired up with uh, Josh Allen. Yeah, I forget. Even at the traditional, sometimes non-telling metrics, I forgot he averaged 5.7 yards per catch, which even for a running back is very bad. Very, very bad. He's kind of got like the make and miss, but then he's like, oh, yeah, that was pretty cool, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, does it do anything afterwards? Like, you know, you got to keep running. <laughs> to that point, though, I, I do think you guys highlighted it. It seems like if you're trying to get a piece of this Bills offense, the, the backfield seems like the clear, cheapest, and easiest way to get a part well, of it. Well, if yeah. you, you want the very Maybe. cheapest, no. you go Isaiah McKenzie, who's who uh, his catcher passes from Josh Allen in minicamp, which means he's playing some with the first team. Uh, and Jameson Crowder is also very cheap. I think you can tack on one of those guys. You're not mm-hmm. like pick one because they're both not going to hit. They're sharing the same role. But I think one of those guys probably does have some some value. We've seen a lot of value out of that slot role in Buffalo. Crane, are you? Do you have a preference between the two? I've been taking McKenzie a lot. I just kind of think he's better. But. I've taken Crowder some just because I okay. feel like he's like more Beasley esque and like he's sure. just eventually going to like earn the trustworthy role. But mm-hmm. I've been reconsidering that a little bit. Like I probably need to make sure to prioritize McKenzie a bit more, who I have been taking, but just not quite as much because he's just so much cheaper. So like I, what I need is just so much less. So I like both. I think the Bills with McKenzie like have a hard cap in mind for his touches always. Really, I feel like they just don't think he's big enough to withstand the rigors. And like when Beasley was hurt, like they didn't mind doing it because they had no other option. But it seems like they have like a number in mind for him, then they never want to exceed it. I had to double check, and it was not in fact a fever dream that in week sixteen Isaiah McKenzie had eleven catches, one hundred twenty-five yards, and a touchdown. That happened and, and, uh, during a twenty-catch season. It. That was crazy. We were we were a different country then, a different people then. <laughs> uh, all right, the points bet over under on the Bills wins is eleven and a half. Zach Kruger, who wrote this column, took the under guys. What Ooh. is your move? It's the year of the Bills. They're going to go thirteen and four, and I believe thirteen is more than eleven and a half. So I'll take the over. 
Our Bills over. I'm going to go Zach on this one. I had the under. I, I think their division was probably one of the biggest uh, turnaround candidates getting a completely revamped Dolphins <clears throat> team, aside from two, who's the same, but gets better weapons, and then both the other quarterbacks going into their second year in, a, in an NFL offense. So I think their division gets a lot harder. They're still the best team in it, but I think it's close, and they don't get over that number. That's the thing. The division's improved, but I think they'll still go 5-1 and one in the division. All right, you can check out these team previews in their full glory and the rest of the team previews, which will be rolling out over an undisclosed period of weeks and months on NBC Sports Edge. Uh, guys, anything else to promote on the site beyond just these team previews? No. Nope. Last week of uh, last week of USFL, I'll have one final thing for that. And I will, I've teased this for two consecutive shows that I've been on. We'll finally do a best ball uh, playoff stacking thing. It'll be out this weekend. All right, Crane. You look intent. You're good. Crane looks content. very yeah. content. I've got this. Uh, I got this Bengals preview coming up next week. That uh, I'll I'll be writing next week. Look, I think he was writing some of the Bengals preview right there. He was. He <laughs> I was, was thinking about it in my head, just thinking about Joe yeah, Burrow. Fantasy. Here. He's up to sixty-five words now. <laughs> All right, that is going to do it for us. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you listen. Take a moment to rate and review us as well. I want to say thanks to everyone for listening and watching live. Corrine, Kyle, Pat, thanks to all of you. I will see you guys next week. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.